Stories. Everybody's got them, and we can learn from each other. History can be traced through letters and writings, but the one thing that has remained throughout the generations is the oral tradition. Oral history is one attempt to pass along the stories, tales, musings, and remembrances of one family for the benefit of listeners for generations to come. Join us now for this episode of Oral History with Jeff Zulkowski. Welcome to the second season of Aural History and Episode 1. Thank you so much for spending the past year with us. It's been a wonderful year of just exploring just a variety of topics, but mostly going all the way back to our very first episode with an eye toward the purpose for Aural History, and that is to give my daughter in her lifetime some things to remember me by and some Uh, stories to live by. And with that in mind, as we begin season two, I just want to remind you that we have a website, aural-history.com. You can go there, you can download the podcast, listen to the podcast, subscribe on various platforms. You can become part of our Patreon uh, group and become a patron and support us in ways that help us recoup some of the small things that we pay for in order to keep this podcast on the air. So appreciate you and all of that. Um, As always, you can find us on any of the major podcasting platforms, including Apple and Google, as well as Odyssey and Audible and others. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for supporting us. You can also visit our Facebook page. So as we begin season two, I wanted to explain why I'm a little late tonight. I know most people probably listen to this not in real time, but my goal is to always have this ready to go by 8 p.m. on a Saturday. And I was a little distracted by the end of a college football game between Ohio State and Maryland that went right to the wire. And with that in mind, what I want to talk to you about tonight is just the love for sports that I've had throughout my lifetime. Um, This came early in my family. As I grew up in Colorado, in a little town in Colorado, you bled blue and orange if you bled anything. And you were a Bronco fan above all else. And we, as a family, just absolutely loved Bronco games. Sunday afternoons at 2 o'clock Mountain Time, we were on the couch ready to go, and nothing much else mattered. It depended on the game. Um, if it was one of the two times a year we that the Broncos played the Oakland Raiders, literally nothing else mattered. If it was one of the two times that at that point they played one of the other teams in what was then the AFC West, either Seattle, Kansas City, San Diego, um, if they played one of those teams, it was also pretty much appointment television. Most of them were. But I will tell you about one particular instance in my lifetime that I remember. I was probably about 11 years old, and we were watching the Broncos play the Oakland Raiders, and I'm referring to these teams as they were then. Um, I know now they're in Las Vegas, but they're always going to be the Oakland Raiders. And the joke is in our family was always, there's two teams that we're always going to root for. We're going to root for the Denver Broncos, and we're going to root for whoever is playing the Oakland Raiders. And in this particular Sunday in our house, I recall that 
we were in the middle of watching the game and it was exciting. It was fourth quarter, close game, um, just a lot of excitement about what was going on. And the toilet in the bathroom began to flood over. And I remember my dad saying, the toilet can wait, the Bronco game can't. I mean, this is in a, a, a lifetime ago when there was no such thing as DVRing a game or watching it after the fact on demand or even having a VCR to record the game. You watched it, you watched it live, and or you didn't watch it at all. You read about the score in the paper the next day. And so... At that point, we were such avid fans that an overflowing toilet did not match the need to watch the game. And that's the kind of fans that we were. We, as a family, would often pack up, and if the Broncos were in town in Denver, that was a two, two-and-a-half-hour drive for, for us, we would sometimes get in the car as a family and drive to Denver. My parents would rent a hotel room. There was a Holiday Inn that was right next to Mile High Stadium. So Mile High Stadium sat on their property right between that and the frontage road was this 30-story round Holiday Inn. There was the frontage road and then there was I-25. And we would go and we would rent a room, usually high enough in the place to kind of see over out the window into the stadium if at all possible. But it really, there was no vantage point. But you could open the windows of the hotel room and actually hear the roar of the crowd next door. And we would often do that. We would often go downstairs and just kind of walk around the stadium and maybe find somebody that was selling tickets at a cheap price. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, my family was not wealthy by any means. In fact, we were poor and we didn't know it. As kids, we had no idea. Like my parents did things for us that just let us not even think about the fact that we might be poor. But if my dad could find cheap tickets, we would take whatever we could from a scalper outside the stadium. And sometimes we would get in and watch the games. And other times we'd give up and we'd go back and we'd watch the game on television in the hotel room while we listened to the crowd live and in real time out the open window of our hotel room. I recall one particular time there was, there've always been super fans for teams and Denver Broncos for years had a gentleman who would wear nothing but a plastic barrel, uh, a cowboy hat and suspenders and cowboy boots and i hoping undergarments. Um, but he, like whether it was 15 degrees in the stadium or it was 85 or 90 degrees in the stadium, this is what he wore. Well, Prior to him, there were other super fans, as I'll call them, kind of they were, before there were mascots. These were people who would show up just about everywhere, sometimes for one particular team over and over again. For the Denver Broncos, it was a guy who would wear nothing but a, a rainbow colored Speedo. And he had this big afro, blonde afro that he had dyed in rainbow colors as well. And we were in the elevator on our way down one time and encountered this guy and had the opportunity to say hello to him. So there were moments of bumping into people that you might know here and there, running into players um, outside the stadium afterward and that sort of thing. But it was always just coming from the heart of a true fan. I've called this episode Go Sports because it's not just about 
Broncos football, but I mean, that's what our family lived and breathed was Bronco football. I recall the first time the Broncos made it to the Super Bowl at the end of the 1977 season. They were led by a quarterback by the name of Craig Morton, and he led this team that was just clearly overmatched in the Super Bowl by the Dallas Cowboys, but had gone an entire season on just guts and heart and soul to get there. And they got severely overmatched in the Super Bowl and got crushed. And And then it was a number of years, several, over a decade before the Broncos ever made it back. And they made it to several uh, Super Bowls in the John Elway era. John Elway was, was drafted at the end of the 1983 college season and he he joined he was drafted by Baltimore which were the Baltimore Colts and he refused to play there he was going to go play baseball and somehow they finagled a deal and got him to Denver and John Elway who is just iconic as far as Denver Broncos football is concerned came and became a Bronco and he had rough years like he his first few years were really really rough I can recall John uh, lining up behind his guard one time to take the snap and the guard was shooing him away because he was in the wrong place. He had to move over to the center to get the ball. And um, I can recall times where they would, they were so desperate that they would allow John to pooch punt on third down and it just lean years. But everybody in Colorado, everybody in our family knew that John was going to be something special. And John eventually led us to us, I say, the Denver Broncos to um, uh, several Super Bowls, won two of them, one against the Green Bay Packers in 1998 and one against the Atlanta Falcons in 1999. But prior to that, there were three other just crushing, crushing losses to teams like San Francisco and the Washington Redskins and the New York Giants. And um, it was just hard, but once you're a Bronco fan, you never stop being a Bronco fan. You just kind of take it as it is. My dad grew up as a as a my dad grew up as a Chicago Cub fan, and the Chicago Cubs went over a century without a a, a, a couple of wins in the in the World Series. So my dad knew how to be a long-suffering sports fan, and he taught us how to be long-suffering sports fans. So we lived through those lean years, and we lived through the the tough losses, and we lived through those amazing comeback wins that got us to those Super Bowls, only to be crushed a couple of weeks later in games against these teams in the NFC that were just bigger and better than the Denver Broncos. But I live in Cleveland now, and I know some of the people who listen to this podcast are going to wince at even the mention of the name John Elway, because in Cleveland, John Elway is just hated. As much as he's revered in Denver, he is hated in Cleveland, because there were two seasons in particular where John led them on final fourth quarter miracle comeback wins the Denver Broncos to beat the Cleveland Browns, one on what was called the drive, one that was referred to as the fumble by Ernest Biner that were just crushing losses for Cleveland football. But me not having lived in Cleveland ever, and me being a Denver Bronco fan at that time, they were 
these glorious wins and and trips to the Super Bowl. Um, Cleveland might only Cleveland sports fans, I should say, might only gather solace from the fact that every one of those games that Denver beat them to make it to the Super Bowl, they then were just crushed when they got there. So I don't know if that helps at all, but that's kind of what being a sports fan is like. There are extreme highs and extreme lows, and you just kind of go on. You don't change allegiance. You continue to root, and you root through the rough years, and you root in the fun and exciting and winning years. I had a couple of other opportunities to brush up against celebrity in in Denver. Uh, I had an opportunity when I was on staff at KTSC-TV. Uh, I had developed a proposal for a sports program we, I was the I was the technical director and then eventually the director for a point counterpoint program at KTSC TV called Standoff that was designed to be kind of controversial, political in nature, um, whatever the topic of the day might be in Southern Colorado. And there were a couple of gentlemen who were more or less celebrity celebrities who wrote for newspapers, one for the Colorado Springs Gazette-Telegraph and one for the Pueblo Chieftain. And they were guys who were just naturally gifted in writing, and they were passionate about sports in general, but especially about the Denver Broncos. And so I had come up with an idea for a sports program that would be about sports issues, not your typical scores and highlights, but the idea of how might the idea of pay-per-view sometime in the future, this is 1992, how might pay-per-view somehow in the future actually affect how sports is consumed on a regular basis? And at the time, it was just, it, there was no idea that that would ever happen. Like the NFL would never move out of a model away from free television to something that you would have to pay for. But eventually the NFL signed a contract with ESPN and people were unable to see a certain slate of games. And And even now on Thursday nights in the NFL, games are exclusively on Prime Video. And so it really is pay-per-view. You have to own a subscription to Prime Video in order to be able to consume Thursday night games in the NFL. But at that time, it was unheard of. It was futuristic thinking, and, and I thought it would be a good idea to deal with issues like that, with um, just tra head trauma was, was an idea that I had, um, injuries in general, but head trauma in particular. And again, this is 1991, well before there were investigations of CTE and concussion protocols and all of that thing. You, as a NFL player, you played, you got hit, you got your bell rung, and you sucked it up and you went back in. I can remember one particular game with a quarterback who got nailed so hard, he was sitting on the turf and they zoomed a camera in and he was blinking about one blink every minute and a half. He was just so dazed. And he was back in the game later that game. And it was just unheard of. So a lot of these things that I was thinking about, these sports issues, and to have these two writers from the newspaper be kind of the the point to some 
person's counterpoint and kind of have a two-on-one. That was the kind of the basis of the show. Well, as I began to develop some material for that show, I took the opportunity to go to Denver Broncos training camp. They have training camp in Inglewood, Colorado. At that time, it was actually in, um, I believe, Golden, Colorado at Northern uh, Northern Colorado University. And I went up there and I was with all of the other sports photographers and getting footage, standing on the sideline during... (laughs) team drills and practice and they were doing plays and that sort of thing. But this particular day, as is apparently the point every day, but I had never been to camp before in this capacity, the the coach after camp is done comes off, stands at one particular spot in the field, and all of the reporters gather around him in kind of a semicircle and they stand shoulder to shoulder either with their notepads if they're uh, a print journalist or with their video cameras or their audio recorders if they're, you know, mass media of video or or radio. And so Dan Reeves, who was the coach of the Denver Broncos at that time, came off of the field. Practice was over. The team went over. They were signing autographs. And I followed all the other journalists over and Dan started taking questions. And I had been out there for about two hours by myself carrying this heavy equipment, this camera that I had to wear on my shoulder, this deck that I wore on my other shoulder. And I stood there in that arc of of journalists and Dan was answering questions. And for one split second, I rocked back on my back foot just to take a breather and rest between a couple of questions. And immediately the hole closed up. The other journalists just squeezed me out and I was suddenly standing behind them. And so I'd lost any opportunity to ask a question or be involved. I had some footage, but I didn't have much. And Dan thanked everyone and said, you know, that's it for today. Thank you so much. And they all departed and uh, and they knew the protocol. They all left. I was bold. I was young. I didn't know the protocol. So I said, Coach Dan Reeves, can I just ask you one quick question? And he was so gracious. And I don't even recall what question it was, what sports issue it was. It might have been the pay-per-view aspect or something of that nature. But he was so gracious and he he took the time and he answered my question one-on-one after all the other journalists had left. And he answered my question and it was just one of the golden moments in my life in sports. I got to talk to the head coach of the Denver Broncos one-on-one for the purpose of this program that I was preparing. Now, unfortunately, the program never came to fruition. I still have some tapes tucked away in my closet in my attic of some of those things that I captured. But at that time, that was just one of the most exciting things. If you've listened to other opportunities that I've had being behind the lens of a video camera, you'll know that at one time I actually had the opportunity to meet Chevy Chase on the set of the vacation, uh, uh, National Lampoon's vacation, and forgot to do the audio recording. Um, You'll know that when I was also working for Canyon Cable 11, I had the opportunity to interview uh, a gentleman who played the character Red Eye on Battlestar Galactica, the lead Cylon, and I got to see my friend Joe actually don the helmet 
that was part of the costume with the red eye pulsing back and forth across. And these were just amazing moments as a photojournalist, but amazing moments as a fan of this stuff. I mean, I was a fan of Chevy Chase from the time he started on Saturday Night Live. I was a fan of Battlestar Galactica for the very few seasons it was on ABC. I was a fan of the Denver Broncos who, and I grew up in a household where it was more important to watch the game than it was to deal with the overflowing toilet. So you have to understand this was huge to me. It was just amazing to be a part of this. But our, our allegiances were not completely tied to the Denver Broncos. They were, they were tied to the entire Denver sports scene. I, I can recall one time my sister and I, and we had an opportunity to go to an NBA basketball game at what, what then was called McNichols Arena. It was, has since been torn down, and the new stadium for the Denver Broncos exists on that spot, and they built something called the Pepsi Center across I-25 in Denver. But at that time, we went to uh, an NBA game. This is in the era when guys like David Thompson and Doug Moe were playing for the Denver Nuggets, and um, we just had an opportunity to go to the game. And after the game, we knew where outside the players would come out of the building. And they typically would come out and there would be a group of fans waiting for them. And they would sign autographs and hats and that sort of thing. And on this particular night, we stood off at the end and thought, "We're there's just too many people here. We're not going to have a chance to ask these guys for an autograph. And so... I stood off toward the end and at one point they were the crowd was kind of getting ready to disperse and can't recall who it was. I, I, I'm, I'm so ashamed that I can't recall. He was he was an excellent point guard. It was not David Thompson, but it was another young man. And as the crowd was leaving, he caught sight of me standing there and he made his way past the entire crowd, came over and signed a ball cap that I had. And it was just another one of those moments where you get to meet your heroes. You get to meet guys that you watch them on television and they get paid to do amazing physical feats. I'm not idolizing these people, but they do very well. For you to make it all the way to the NBA or all the way to the NFL, all the way through college, it takes some real skill and real talent to go that far. And for them to show kindness like they like Dan did when he stepped aside from the other reporters and answered my question at, at Bronco training camp, and like this young player did when he stepped away from the crowd and signed a hat for me, it just shows how real these athletes can be. And I know there are plenty of stories of athletes doing horrible things and being complete jerks to people. But there are really some quality, quality athletic people that get paid a lot of money, but are very humble and take the opportunity to care for the fans that they know keep them in business, keep their sports teams in business. Probably the first sporting event that my family ever went to uh, was my doing. Um, when I was in junior high, maybe sixth grade, 
there was some sort of a thing in my school that if you got a certain amount of grades, you could go into a pool for a series of gifts. And and one of the gifts was a four-pack of tickets to a Denver Bears baseball game. Now, the Denver Bears were a triple-A uh, baseball team in Denver, minor league, that played in Mile High Stadium where the Broncos played. Mile High Stadium was unique in that it was actually designed for one entire section of the stadium to move forward for football and create this rectangular space or move backward for baseball and create that odd shape that baseball diamonds are. And we got to go as a family because of whatever this thing was that I had accomplished in school. And so that was the very first sporting event that we ever got to actually attend and had tickets and seats and got to be, I think, fairly low in the stands for that game and were recognized and that sort of thing. And it was just exciting. Like it, at even at that age, it began to build in me a desire to just pick sports apart and be a part of it. And it goes on. Like we, uh, we became fans of the Colorado Buffaloes, um, the, the college football team. And we would just root for the Colorado Buffaloes in all the games they played. The, the big rivalry match when, when I was growing up is they played Nebraska University. And all week prior to those games, there would be jokes on the radio about what does the N stand for on the Nebraska helmet? Well, they would say it stands for knowledge and just whatever they could to put down Nebraska because it was this big rivalry game. And now that I live in Cleveland, I have an appreciation for that, just that tradition of rivalry because in, in Ohio, we don't even refer to this team up north, this uh, Wolverine team that plays in the state north of us because we won't say the letter that they're city their their state starts with in fact if you go on the campus of ohio state uh, university the speed limit signs actually have an x over the letter m because that's how much the rivalry means to ohio state and to michigan and that was part of the reason why i was late in getting to the podcast tonight is because i was watching the game that was leading up to the game the game is next week between Ohio State and Michigan. And we became fans in my family of Colorado football. And we became fans of just about every sport. We had we we would go to Colorado Rockies games. Now when I say Colorado Rockies games, you're immediately thinking baseball. But at that time the Colorado Rockies franchise was an NHL franchise. Uh, National Hockey League franchise. And the Colorado Rockies were eventually sold and moved out of Denver, became the New Jersey Devils. And then the Avalanche, which is now the NHL team, was somewhere in Canada and actually moved down and became the, the NHL team that's currently in Denver. But we would go to Colorado Rockies hockey games. And that hockey became big in our family for a multitude of reasons. But Rockies games were especially fun because there was another super fan, um, kind of tied himself to the Colorado Rockies in particular. Later in his in his career, he branched out to other teams, but he was a guy named Crazy George. Crazy George was a guy that was probably in his 40s or 50s who, again, wore just strange garb 
had this wild teased hair, uh, a small drum, and he would just run around the stadium, around the arena, banging that drum. And one of his signature moves is he would start on a on a row of steps, and he would run down those steps as fast as he could and throw himself against the glass, the outside of the glass where the hockey players were playing, sometimes to the, to the startling of the players who were on the ice because he was just crazy. He was crazy George. And that was what he did. And we, we never had the privilege of meeting him, but he was another one that when we went to games, we wanted to see Crazy George as much as we wanted to see the hockey game. We became huge fans of Colorado college hockey because my brother attended college there and it became a weekend event to go and watch hockey games. Every bit of it. We were there early. We stayed until everybody was out of the stadium. We watched the Zamboni redo the ice and we watched the Zamboni park and we would go off to the side and actually watch uh, curling. They had a curling rink right off to the side at Broadmoor World Arena, the original one, which has, again, since been torn down and rebuilt. But we became curling fans at that and began to watch that as it would come up every four years in the Winter Olympics. So much so that in my lifetime, I've had the privilege of actually belonging to a curling club here in Cleveland. And if you don't understand curling, curling is kind of a combination between shuffleboard and chess on ice. Now it's different ice than you would find on a hockey f arena because it's pebbled. Um, meaning once they freeze the ice, they take and they put water droplets on the ice and they shave the tops of the water droplets off and it creates these little bumps that they take these 40 pound granite stones that are only mined in one place in Scotland and they slide them along the ice and they curl by how they're released and there are two guys in front of the guy who's releasing the stone and those two guys sweep in order to either speed up the stone or to straighten it out and there's a, a skip or a team lead who kind of calls the shots and you're trying to bump stones out and bring your stones in and and make everything fit so that you can win these multiple, what what are called ends, which are kind of like innings in baseball. And my love for curling came from my love for hockey, which came from my love for the Colorado Rockies team, which came from my love, came from my love for Denver sports in general. So you can see how this has just become part of my lifestyle. Now, when Riss and I got married, I was a little concerned that we wouldn't share this love of sports, but she does because she grew up in Indiana. She grew up with Peyton Manning as the quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts. She, she grew up watching football with her dad and understood the game. And so we've loved especially the NFL together and we watch it together and we watch college sports together sometimes too. And she understood so much my love of curling that she allowed me to do that. Not only as a way to just be a part of something that I fell in love with, but also to allow it to be a mission field. At the time, I was working at a church. All my friends were Christians. I didn't have anybody in my life that didn't know Christ. And so I joined the curling club where I could rub elbows and get to know people that 
don't share the same worldview as I do. And it was great to get to know the people that I knew there and just to, to befriend them and to be in their presence and to be light, to be Jesus in their midst. And um, I don't know if I did a great job, but I was there and I was purposeful in being there and waiting for opportunities for people to open the door for me to share my faith with them. So in all of this, it's just a love for sports in general. This episode, Go Sports, it's just part of who I am. It's not a part of somebody, it's not a part of who my daughter is right now, but I'm hoping at some point in, in the future, she'll have an appreciation for how important this was to me and, and how much fun it can be. My family still, to this day, we play fantasy football together. Um, we There are eight of us. We have a, a league that plays through the season. I'm trying not to brag, but I'm currently in first place. Um, hopefully pride not doesn't go before a fall here, but um, on an eight-game winning streak and just kind of having fun doing fantasy football. And it's something my family still gets together. It changes the way you watch sports because you find yourself rooting for a player on the team that might be playing your team, which will be the case this weekend. Um, but it's another way for my family to connect over sports. Um, we're in the process when this is being recorded of working our way into Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a huge sports day in America. There used to only be two football games on Thanksgiving Day. Now there are three, but it's a day when people just get together over food and family and fun and sports and enjoy the time together. And that's what my family has always done. And again, oral history is here because you take the time to listen. And hopefully some of the things that I've talked about today will ring true with you. You'll you'll remember Dan Reeves, or you'll remember Crazy George, or you'll remember John Elway, whether you loved him or hated him. You'll you'll think about having seen curling at the Olympics, or whatever the case may be, and, and hopefully it will bring a smile to your face and a little joy to your life. But my ultimate goal is that I hope too that my daughter at some point in the future will listen to this and go, wow, that was that was really important to my dad. Maybe see what was so important about it. I'll, I'll listen to it. So that's my goal. And, and I appreciate you listening to me ramble. This has been a little different than normal, um, a little bit more lighthearted, a little, um, little bit more uh, easygoing, but I just wanted you to know what it's like to be a lifelong sports fan. I want to finish with one story that's just huge in my family. My brother and my dad and I share this love of sports and had a number of opportunities to go to primarily baseball games at different venues around the United States, have been in football games in San Diego, been to baseball games in San Francisco, been to a, a baseball game in New York City, um, just been different places. But we had one opportunity where my brother, my sister-in-law, my dad, and I, we all met in Chicago. And we got to go to a number of places, but 
one of the big deals of that trip was we were going to go and see the Cubs because my dad had been a Cubs fan his entire life. My brother had been a Cubs fan his entire life. I grew up a Cincinnati Reds fan for because they were good when I first started paying attention to baseball and because my grandmother loved them. But I was a Cubs fan too. And as I mentioned before, especially with the college hockey games, we would always wait until everybody left. We would practically wait after sporting events until they asked us to leave because we would wait for all of the traffic to go away. And we just loved being in the stadium. Even after the game was over and it was quiet and nothing was going on, we still loved being there. So we went to this Cubs game. I can't remember who won. I can't remember who lost. I don't even remember who the Cubs played. But when the game was over, we waited as long as we traditionally did in my family, and we were walking the, the tarmac, the, the, the area underneath the stands, and we, we were making our way around trying to soak in as much of Wrigley Field as we possibly could. And as we were coming around a corner, there were three people coming down a flight of stairs from what apparently was the press box. And the two people around the older white-haired gentleman in the middle were kind of assisting him down the stairs. And it was Harry Carey. Now, if you're a fan of anything Chicago Cubs, you know who Harry Carey is. Harry Carey is iconic. He's the guy that sang Take Me Out to the Ball Game during the seventh inning stretch. He was just he was Mr. Baseball. He was the dude for the Chicago Cubs. And he came down the stairs and he caught sight of the four of us and he saw my dad and he looked straight at my dad and he said, how are you doing, young man? And Harry and my dad were probably the same age, but that made my dad's day. That probably was one of the things in sports that my dad remembered until the day he died. It's still something that chokes me up and chokes my brother up when we think about the fact that my dad got to meet a hero. And I got to meet some heroes. And that's what sports is all about. Now, I'm not going to let this go without at least a few minutes talking to you about the only person that deserves your full and complete adoration and awe, and that's Jesus Christ. Someday, I'll get to meet him. I won't call him a hero because that diminishes who he is. He is Lord. He is my Savior. And he is deserving of all of the glory all the glory that every sports hero ever got, Jesus Christ is worthy of that glory. And I want you to know him. So tonight, today, whenever you happen to be listening to this, if you don't know Jesus personally as your Lord and Savior, there's only two things you have to do. You just have to believe that what he did, he did for you. He died on the cross so that your sin could be forgiven, placed upon him and his righteousness imparted to you so that you could spend eternity in heaven with God. You just have to believe that to be true. And you just have to confess. 
You have to repent of your sins and say, I can't do what I am doing any longer. I can't make my life better, but you, God, can. So please take away my sin. I believe that Jesus is who he said he is, and I accept him as my Lord and Savior. I repent of my sins. Give your life to Christ tonight, today. Let this be the day of your salvation. And if it is, as always, I just ask that you would please, please go to our website, rl-history.com, rl-history.com, and just send an email and let me know that that's the decision that you've made. So I appreciate the extra time today. I appreciate the fact that you stayed with me in this little travel with me in this little road trip down Ghost Sports Avenue. And I'm so grateful. I'm looking forward to more of this in season two. And I'm so grateful that you're a part of it. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Aural History. This has been a production of Z Media and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. Join us again next time.